Cindy Delahaye and I have had many healing conversations throughout our 30 plus years of friendship. In this one, she shares how she found freedom from anxiety and terror that manifested following her daughter's surgery to remove a brain tumor. Take us back to seven years ago. Roxy was five at the time. Yes, ma'am. Where were you when you noticed something was off, which you initially thought might be vertigo? We were in the magical land of Disney. We had taken our first family trip and uh, went down to Disney in Florida. We had flown. It was our first flight. I have trouble with flights with my ears popping and ear issues. And our second day that we were there, she just she just looked funny. Her eyes were very, very open and large. She was having a hard time balancing and walking. She was kind of, it was, she appeared drunk. And, you know, we were like, what is going on? And I started to think that she maybe had vertigo and maybe something had happened on the flight and maybe her ear popped or didn't pop and it was messing up her balance. You know, we just figured we were in the mecca of germs and she got something. So we spent five of our seven days of vacation stuck in the hotel room with her. Then we flew her home. The pediatrician just absolutely dismissed everything I said at every turn. It was it was terrible. I felt like she absolutely wasn't listening to me and just disregarding everything I said. One thing after another just was trying to throw medicine at it. And that's when I learned mm-hmm. it's important for you to be your own patient advocate. Mm-hmm. So I decided to take matters into my own hands, and thankfully we have insurance that I did not require referrals to get to specialists. And having a background in the medical field, I selected a certain a certain ENT to go to that I had liked, that I enjoyed sending patients to and got a lot of good feedback from. So I called the office. The lady that spoke to me there remembered me from working at McLaren, and she got her in right away. How did you find out it was something more serious? I took her up there and was fully expecting them to tell me like, oh man, she's got a perforated eardrum. The doctor, Dr. Agabigum is his name. He's my absolute savior and hero. He looked at me and he said, I'm afraid that it's not an ear thing. And then he checked her eyes. And when he checked her eyes, he saw what they call papilledema, which is a sign of swelling on the brain. It's like swelling behind the eyes. And that's indicative of pressure, which is indicative of a mass or a tumor in the brain. So he sat me down and explained this to me. And I felt like I had been hit by a Mack truck. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And he said, all right, hang on a minute. I'm going to call my friend. And just a little backstory, Dr. Agabigum had previously been a pediatric neurologist who had turned to a pediatric ENT later in his career. Had we not gone to him, I really don't believe our story would have played out this way. Mm. He was the exact person we needed to be to. He made the phone call personally to his friend, Dr. Kadura, who was just across the street, personally requested that he see my daughter immediately. Dr. Kadura, God bless him, He was leaving to go on vacation with his family, like leaving the office to get on a plane. And he agreed to wait for us. He took one look at her and said, we need an MRI. Take your daughter to Hurley and I'll meet you there. So I called Adam and he met us over there. They sedated her and they took her back and they did the MRI. And we waited what felt like days when it was probably only 30, 40 minutes. Dr. Kadura walked in the door, which I was shocked because he was supposed to be gone. And when he walked in and I was, I got over my moment of shock, I realized that this is bad. And he looked at me and he said, this is very serious. She has a brain tumor and it's really big. And I was like, really big? What does that mean? And he put up the scans on the, on the screen for us to look at. And I've seen these before. I worked in the medical field and did medical referrals. So I'm, I'm familiar. 
and I'm looking at it and I said, I don't see anything. And he said, that's because the tumor is so large. It's actually pushing her brain out of the way. Oh my gosh. It was uh, wrapped around her cerebrum, which controls your motor functions and things. So that's why she appeared to be drunk, bad balance and, you know, tripping and falling. And she would get up and have to trace the wall to get somewhere so she wouldn't fall down. So they gave us a choice and they said, you can either choose to go to Children's Hospital Beaumont, or you can go to the U of M Ann Arbor Children's Hospital. We had friends and family that have gone through U of M, so we selected them, got in an ambulance and rode down there. Adam met us with some clothes, and it was incredible. From the moment we arrived, there were people waiting for us and ready for us. They took us immediately to a private room, and we started talking about what's going on, what the plans are. We met the doctor immediately. His name is Dr. Garten, and Dr. Garten is a world-renowned pediatric neurosurgeon. To have him in our backyard the way that we do was just a ridiculous blessing. This has been our whole journey, though. I mean, blessing on top of blessing. We've just been so very fortunate. So Dr. Garten sat down with us and we discussed what we needed. We need a room. We need a team. We need to get the swelling on her brain down before we can do any surgery. And we've got to remove this. So they started in with the steroids on her and uh, they warned us. They said she's going to be a, a little demon baby. We're like, our, our sweet little baby? No. Oh, my. That steroid rage is a thing. <laughs> she, she hollered at a couple of nurses and a couple doctors. And that was a, a moment of, wow, that's <laughs> crazy. That was really a thing. The next thing we knew, and we had a really, really short window of time. We arrived on a Monday, and Dr. Garten was leaving that Saturday to go to, I believe he said Ghana. He was doing Doctors Without Borders work. So we had five days to get the swelling down and get that tumor out. And so they work on the swelling and we've got that going for a few days. Her nurses just fell in love with her. One in particular was just incredible. She just, she said that she said, you know, I, I usually don't talk about this and say things like this, but you got to know I'm praying so hard for you guys. And, you know, I'm dating this new guy who's a plastic surgeon here. And we were supposed to go on a date last night. And I told him I couldn't go. I just, I'm so upset about this baby. And she was upset because they were going to have to shave part of Roxy's head and they were going to shave quite a bit of it. And that was a big deal to her. Roxy has beautiful, long, golden blonde hair. And she was convinced she's Rapunzel. So the plastic surgeon, in order to try and help his new girlfriend feel a little better, brought his beautician that he has on staff in. She came in and told the doctors, you tell me where you need to go. And they showed her and she said, okay, you can have this space. And she shaved one line right up the back of her neck to about the knot in the back of your head. What were some things that comforted you during Roxy's surgery and recovery? They were incredible with Roxy there. I mean, just the child uh, advocate specialists that come in, they make sure that the kids are comfortable, that they understand things on a level that a five-year-old can understand them. And in the midst of all of this, you know, we've got friends coming, we've got family coming. It's just, everything is very wooden. Everything is very surreal, very weird. The Ronald McDonald house put us up. I got to make a little side note on that. If you ever get a chance to donate, that is a real thing. They were able to give us a room in the hospital on the same floor as Roxy, so we didn't have to leave. That meant the world to us, to have a space near our daughter to be able to go and rest and take turns to be with her. Having to leave and get a hotel and not be right there would have been horrific to us. So if you ever get a chance, absolutely donate to the Ronald McDonald House. They are incredible. They really follow through. They took amazing care of us. So we, you know, we're just kind of passing the days and she's doing little arts and crafts and we're watching the swelling and it's coming down and, you know, we get word that we've got a room. Okay. We get word that we've got a team. 
Her surgery was scheduled for October 31st on Halloween. And the next thing we know, there was a a woman that comes with her therapy dog. She's a petite woman. And this dog is um, some kind of a poodle mix, but a standard poodle. So he's very large. She came skiing in our room behind this dog who was just dragging this woman. (laughs) Cosmo was his name. And Cosmo dragged her all the way to Roxy's (laughs) bed, put his feet up, climbed into the bed. She is just beside herself. She doesn't even know how to react to this. You know, he's a very well-trained dog. He's certified as a therapy animal and he doesn't do this. She's like, I'm mortified. I'm so sorry. Let me get him down. And we're like, no, this is great. And Roxy's laughing. We're laughing. It was just a, a break in the monotony that we needed. And that was really very special and really awesome. I love that. It was it was great. It really was. I highly encourage people that even are considering doing therapy work with their animals. If you've got an animal that's a people lover and stuff, I mean, do it. It meant so much to us. And it really, really just gave us a break, a mental break that we needed. So then they wheel us down to the elevator and we're all together. And I'm, you know, I'm scared to death. Roxy's five. So she really doesn't kind of know what's going on. You know, she's just kind of, okay, you know. Yeah. And we're waiting in this little kind of like tucked away waiting room. And here comes Cosmo dragging his owner again. (laughs) And we have these great pictures of him. He laid down in between Roxy and I, her and I were laying on the bed together snuggling. And he laid down between us. I'll be darned if he didn't just put his paw in my hand like he knew I needed to hold it. And it was just really, really special. And it really gave me a feeling that everything was really going to be okay. I love how dogs, especially, are so intuitive. So intuitive. He knew what we needed. We needed his little special sweetness. And it was like he was telling us everything was going to be okay. Yeah. So they take her. They tell us. They're like, listen, you need to eat, shower, and you need to sleep. When she comes out of the surgery, which we project is going to be about a 12 to 13 hour surgery, she's going to have her night be her day. So you need to be ready for that. Okay. We went into the surgery with an option. The doctors told us, you know, it's, we're going to leave this entirely up to you with the kind of surgery that we're doing. It's a very, very good chance that she's going to come out and be temporarily mute, which would mean that she, you know, could be a week, a month, six months, a year where she couldn't speak. It's just an odd side effect of this particular surgery that a lot of times the kids come out and they can't speak. They gave us the option to talk with Roxy about that or not. As parents, we decided that it would be too much for a five-year-old to wrap her head around. So we just prayed really hard that that wouldn't be a thing and that we'd get through it. We just kind of wandered around like ghosts for hours and we tried to sleep, got a little here and there, took a shower. Our friends and family were there and God bless our friend Matt Post. He flew up from Florida to be with us, made sure we ate good food, not hospital stuff. (laughs) He just kind of kept us going. Our friend Tracy was there, my mom, Adam's folks. It was a really great support system on top of the team at the hospital. We got a little pager. About every 45 minutes, an hour, they'd send us an update and say, you know, Roxy's doing great. You know, we're doing this or we've gotten to this. So we could kind of follow along. It was the most surreal and longest hours of my entire life that I can ever remember. Finally, they said, she's out of surgery. We're going to bring her up to the room as soon as she wakes up. And then they sent a text and said that she had woken up, but she hadn't spoken yet. Roxy's a very vocal little girl. She started speaking at a ridiculously young age. She was only maybe nine months old when she was already rattling several words to make sentences. And it was just terrifying to think of her not being able to communicate and not understanding that. And so they wheeled her up to the room. There she was with this giant turban and her little face was so swollen. And it was, I mean, almost 
unrecognizable as my daughter. She opened her little eyes and looked around and she said, I want my daddy. And it was just the best noise I'd ever heard. And so Adam was like, I'm right here, baby. And we held her little hand and we climbed in the bed with her and rubbed her tiny feet. And it was just, it was so scary though, to see all these tubes and monitors and how swollen she was, was just crazy. The doctor, God bless him. He was only supposed to be in for part of it, take a break and come back. It ended up being a 15 hour surgery and he stayed through the entire thing. They had miscalculated how long she'd had all of this fluid on her brain, and it had softened her skull. And when they put the halo on her to have it, her stabilized for the surgery, when they crank the halo, it actually crushed her skull in a couple of spots. Ooh. So they immediately had to divert their attention to these two fractures in her skull and correct those before they could move on. So that was what took longer. Dr. Garten said to us, he's like, okay, I'm going to give you a rundown of the last 15 hours. You ready? And we're like, yes. He kind of went into, it was like almost like a dictation mode. Like we weren't there, like he was just dictating. And he said, we did this and we started the surgery at this time and the patient was tolerating this. And it was very doctor speak. And I'm following along, thankfully, with my medical background. It all made sense to me. I've heard dictation before, so I was able to decipher He's going on and he's saying, you know, I, I we did this, we exposed, you know, this and we got to here uh, and we found the tumor and it was, it was fascinating. He said it had basically tentacles, like little arms, and it was wrapped around the cerebrum, like a ball with little arms wrapped around it. And he said, so I had to get it from this direction and I had to go this way and I had to use a mirror to get it from this direction. Then it was like he came out of his dictation mode and realized he was speaking to parents <laughs> because he, a couple of times he had said, he said, very fascinating. And we were just like looking at him and he's like, oh. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, doctor, please go on. This is fine. <laughs> so he's making a little squishing noise in the air with his hand. And he said, it didn't feel like cancer. That's not a medical diagnosis, but I've touched a lot of cancer and cancer has a texture and it didn't feel like cancer. So that's good. But we have to wait until the lab results come back. And we're, of course, punchy as hell at this point and laughing a little. And we're just so grateful she came through this surgery and she's okay. Throughout this whole thing, the doctors kept saying things like, Children are very resilient. And I'm like, stop saying that. This is the one thing you measure everything against. You know, when you're teasing someone that something's not that hard, you say to them, come on, this is not brain surgery. Well, this is brain mm. surgery. And you're telling me kids are resilient. I lost my cool with one of the doctors and I said, say it one more time. <laughs> and he goes, but they are. <laughs> and I'm like, buddy, you are pushing it. And he's like, I promise you can punch me in the face when you find out later if I'm wrong. <laughs> and I laughed and I'm like, listen, I'm just at my wits end. And he said, I understand. A day goes by and the swelling in her head starts going away and they've got these physical therapists coming in and they have her sitting up, you know, they're doing little exercises with her, you know, touch your pinky to your thumb, your next finger and back and forth. And can you do this? Can you do that? She's silly. She's punchy. She's happy. She's so joyful. And it's just unbelievable. She just went through brain surgery and she's just so small. Then they were like, okay, well, once she walks, you can take her home. And she's like, I'm ready to walk. So they got her unhooked from a lot of the machines and she walked like it was no big deal. She was a little floppy. <laughs> it was kind of like watching a penguin walk, which was even funnier because she even says in the video we got that she looks like she has penguin feet. <laughs> so as I look at her and she looks up at me, I realize that one of her eyes isn't looking at me. And I brought this up to the doctor and he said, yeah, 
that optic nerve is really, really sensitive. And if you even barely touch it, it kind of goes haywire. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, well, we're going to leave it alone for now because she's been through so much. We think it'll, it'll heal on its own. And I'm like, you guys are just boneheads. I mean, you're telling me crazy things like she's going to be fine from brain surgery in a day or two. And her crazy eyeball that won't look at me is going to just heal itself. And I'm like, ugh. So we get to take her home and I'm scared to death. I'm like, what, what do I do? And they're like, just take her home and rest and let her heal. And I'm like, but what if it pops open? And they're like, it's, it's not going to pop open. <laughs> oh, that was the other beautiful thing too. I forgot the nurse that was dating the plastic surgeon. The plastic surgeon had a morning full of cleft palate surgeries for children and he finished early and he went down the hall to check on Roxy after he was done. He got there just as they were getting ready to finish up with her and he said, may I step in? I'd like to do no stitches, only internal dissolvable stitches and glue. They said, absolutely, please. So he stepped in and he did this, which meant that she would be able to regrow almost all of the hair that she was missing and that she would scar far less. He went dot by dot and glued her back together, quite literally, making sure that he could expose as many hair follicles as possible so that the most amount of hair would grow back in, which I just found was incredible because, you know, that they're starting to recognize, you know, the little boys are, they do okay. You know, like some of them don't like their head shaved, but, you know, they're little boys and they do okay with it. Whereas little girls, you know, or even little boys with long hair, this is devastating. This is part of their, you know, who they are and their personality and their MO of who they're creating themselves to be. Mm-hmm. It's part of their identity. Well, especially for something that they didn't cause. Exactly. Have a hand in in any way or a choice. So speaking of choices, that was the the last thing the doctor said to me. We were hugging goodbye. He was getting ready to leave and he said, okay, now that hard part is over. Now your next hard part will be surviving this. And I looked at him and I kind of was punchy and I said, surviving survival? And he said, yes. He said the next time she spikes a fever or gets sick in the morning or has symptoms that have been reflective of what you've already seen with this brain tumor, you're going to have a meltdown and you're going to have to control yourself. And I'm like, okay, like, wow, I hadn't thought of it that way. And I'll tell you, first time she woke up sick one day and she threw up and it was morning. I went sheet white. I felt like I couldn't move. I was sweating and I was like, it's happening again. Her particular tumor, they diagnosed as a pilocytic astrocytoma. It did come back, not cancerous, thank God, but it is the type that if you even leave a scrap of it, it will grow back. So we were really, really praying that he got it all and that we wouldn't have to go back in at some point, but we had to watch it, which meant every six months we'd have to have a new MRI and check that out for the first two years. Every six months they wanted an MRI because we never wanted to get behind this again. We always wanted to be in front of it. I had no idea what a mess I had become and how fearful I was about everything. That was the other thing the doctor said. He was like, it's going to be really hard for you not to hold her back from things because you're afraid she might hurt herself. You cannot do that. You have to push her forward and keep her going. And I'm like, okay. And he said, and you're going to deal with some PTSD. Well, that about blew me over. I had only ever really associated PTSD with our military and police and fire. Yeah, right. But he explained it to me and he said, well, she was just thrust into a terrifying situation. She had no control. 
She was like a prisoner of war. She had no options. She had no choices. She had to stay in this bed. She had to undergo all of these torturous things with the IVs and the changing of things and the bandages. He said, this is absolutely something that causes PTSD. She did suffer from PTSD and still occasionally it shows its little ugly head. Hers manifested in separation anxiety. We had been with her for every single day for two, three months while we went through this whole ordeal where she was never alone, not sleeping at any point. She was always with one of us. And then when it came time for her to go back to school, she was terrified, just absolutely terrified. And I I remember asking the doctor, how will I know if she's having PTSD? And he said, you will know, trust me. He said, she will be unreasonable. It will be a meltdown like you've never seen. You may think it's a tantrum, but if there is no soothing her, you need to understand it's PTSD and you need to do whatever you can to keep that under control and not escalate it. He said, by whatever means. Which is hard for a mother to hear too. Yes, absolutely. You know, because you, on one hand, you want to, you know, give your kid the world, but on the other hand, you Mm -hmm. don't want to play into things. So, you know, I was like, where do I draw this line? And so her kindergarten teacher, God bless him, uh, Mr. Riccobono, amazing man, great teacher. He allowed me along with the school, they gave me permission to come and be in school with her and be in class. Definitely felt like Adam Sandler (laughs) in one of his movies where he was uh, in the classroom and, you know, sitting next to his little guy. And then he was a seat away and then he was two seats away and then he was by the door and then he was outside the door. That was kind of the progression of things and how things went for us. You know, I started out right next to her, sitting right next to her. And then the next thing I know, I'm, you know, at a table over or I'm, you know, up at the teacher's desk helping him with things or excuse me a minute, I'm going to run down to the library. I'll be right back. And that was just kind of how we worked her out of her PTSD and the separation anxiety that was manifesting because of it. Little by little, baby steps at a time. She made a lot of little friends. One of them that is still her friend to this day, just she was very excitable and just so full of life and joy. And she got paired with Roxy one day and Roxy was very timid and very meek after her surgery. The little girl's name is Ava. She said, so uh, you had brain surgery, huh? And from the table over, I hear this and I'm like, oh God, kid, like stop talking about it. And Roxy says, "Uh uh-huh. And she says, so uh, you got a scar? And I'm like, oh no. Roxy didn't want to even show the doctors her scar, let alone anybody else. And Roxy goes, "Uh uh-huh. Before I could do anything, Ava is rooting through Roxy's hair to find this scar. Oh my gosh. I'm panicking because it was hideous in the beginning. It was hot pink and it was angry and it was red and it was just something that a child would normally see and go, ew. Before I can even stop anything, Ava finds the scar and she exposes it and she goes, cool. Lays her hair back down and they carried on reading. And thereafter, Roxy was no longer afraid of throwing anybody her scar. It was just one thing after another, I swear, just these blessings that we came across that it was, it could have gone this way. It went the way we needed it to. Speaking of that, I never really put a whole lot of stock in prayer or anything like that. But uh, a girlfriend of mine, Jen Boffman, made a sign and it said, I believe in Roxy, go team Delahaye. 
and she took a picture and she posted it on Facebook. And her coworker saw it and she said, what's this about? And she told our story and her coworker said, well, I want to do it too. So she did the same thing. You know, I believe in Roxy, go team Delahaye, took her picture and posted it. Well, her mother saw it and she did it. And then a woman in Russia with her dog did it. And a woman in Hawaii did it. And people in Germany did it. And a mega church in Georgia sent me a message and asked if they could put her picture up on their big screen and have their congregation of 6,000 plus members pray for her. I got to tell you, I have to feel at this point with that many people all thinking and praying and wishing for the same thing collectively, I really feel like it affected things. I really do. And you'll never change my mind about that. I believe it. I've personally experienced, as you know, the incredible power of healing with the community around you. Yep. That was very special and, and incredible to us. And, you know, so I... And before that, I would, you know, I'd, I'd see things where people would be saying things like, oh, sending prayers. And it's like, oh, yeehaw, you know, don't hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. And I just really took that for granted until we went through what we went through. And now I definitely don't feel like that. I feel like you get enough collective people thinking and hoping and wishing and praying for the same thing. I really believe that it can affect change. I really do. Yeah, beautiful miracles. We had another little friend of Roxy's named Kingsley, that was a little beautiful soul. Her mother made a picture of Roxy and put it on a fairy body and put it on a stick. (laughs) Kingsley was devastated that Roxy was not going to get to go trick-or-treating on Halloween. Five-year-olds, gotta love them. So... She went trick-or-treating that day, and she would go up to the door, and she'd say, trick-or-treat, and they'd give her her candy. And then she'd turn around and take another bag from her mom and hold up the little Roxiana stick and say, this is my friend Roxy. She's having brain surgery today and can't go trick-or-treating, so I'm collecting candy for her. And her mom, Kat, said uh, one thing after another, just people just upending their buckets of candy in there and in tears and, oh, my goodness, you know, and prayers from strangers all around and stuff. They, it was just, it was such a thoughtful, beautiful thing, you know, to, she was just, couldn't have it that Roxy wasn't going to get candy because she was having brain surgery. (laughs) So she collected a butt ton of candy and we had so much that Roxy said she wanted to share it with the other kids on the floor. Just kind of spread the love around. And it was just one of those moments of light in the dark. I love that so much. And just, you can see the light in children. Absolutely. You know, and how thoughtful they are. Yep. It was beautiful, the kinds of things that they did on their own and how how very sensitive even five-year-olds are to each other's needs without them even really having to speak it. Of course, after Roxy's surgery, her balance was just, I mean, it had already been devastated by the tumor, but even after it was gone, it was like she had to relearn, like walking, she was good. Running was terrible. I mean, it was, you know, a bow tie, knotted feet. Here we go. We're falling down. So gym class was a scary time for her. She gets to gym class one day and it's her turn and they have to take a ball, run to the end of the gym, roll the ball into a a bunch of pins, like bowling pins that were set up, knock them down, take the ball and bring it back to the next teammate. You know, it was like a relay and it was her turn and I was watching and I'm trying to stand back and, you know, let her work things out. But at the same time, I could see it all over her face that she was scared and I was afraid we were going to go into another PTSD moment. I just didn't know what to do. Next thing I knew, this little guy named Nolan, he he saw her hesitation, even as a five-year-old, that she was just kind of standing there scared. And he said, come on, Roxy, I got you. And he grabbed her by her hand. And he basically dragged her down the other side of the gym, running and tripping, and but he kept her up. <laughs> 
and he got her down there and he gave her the ball and she rolled it and missed wildly. So he took his little body and just blew out the pins and knocked them all down. (laughs) And then he grabbed the ball and he turned around and he started to run. When she made the turn, she started to lose her balance and fall. Nolan threw himself on the ground and yelled, I got you, (laughs) threw himself on the ground underneath Roxy and caught her. The rest of the classroom left the relay line, ran to Nolan and Roxy. All of them helped each other up and they all held hands and ran to the end. And I'll tell you, the gym teacher and I just stood there and cried. So Roxy is now 12 years old. Give us an update on the tumor and also her overall health. Once we reached five years with clean MRIs, we would claim victory. But until then, we still had to be on high alert. So we did five years and it felt a little bit like prison time, passed kind of slowly. You know, every MRI was another hold your breath moment and sobbing in tears when the results came back and that there was nothing showing. And then our our last one came and it was, you know, it was very nerve wracking, that one in particular, because we knew it was the last one that we needed to be able to claim victory. So we went and they did the MRI and the results came in and the doctor came in and he said, that's it. We've done it. He said, we beat it. It's victory day. And we all hugged and cried. And it was just a moment of, oh my gosh, it's over for real. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to what you were saying about Nolan and how he helped Roxy and then the rest of the class helped her. I just think that's so lovely. It really is. And I got to tell you, Estella, from having grown up with you and everything that I know that you've been through, kids are different. They're being brought up better. Mm -hmm. They're being taught better. Yeah, because when you saw the bullying and the teasing, how relentless that was. Yeah. She had a very different experience. So different. I love that for her. I'm very grateful to the parents these days that don't allow the bullying, that don't put up with it, that stop it, that teach their kids better before they turn into these bullies. I just say it's a different world than what we experienced growing up. And I've got to say, I'm... Mm -hmm could not have been more grateful because I think I probably would have uh, ended up in prison otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I would have been able to. Total mama bear. Total mama bear. So it's a very different world and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. So we, we just got through it with our friends and all of our loved ones and everyone playing such a special role. Roxy's best friends, just all so very cognitive of what she's been through and how that's shaped her how they take things into consideration and how how sweet and good they are. She has all these great friends and they're just beautiful souls, all of them. Ayla, Emmy, Ava are her tight, tight friends she's had since kindergarten. You know, they're they're like the little rat pack and watching them become these young little ladies has just been such a such a beautiful thing and stuff. Watching my own daughter overcome, you know, this PTSD and and be comfortable and letting go of the fears that got bottled up inside of her as a five-year-old that, you know, she didn't really know how to articulate them or what to do about them or handle them. Mm-hmm. Watching her grow has been incredible. She's she's an all-A, A-B student. She works really hard. School comes a little naturally for her, which I credit Adam she got his genes and and book smarts thank goodness and stuff but she's unbelievably kind she's very empathetic she's very thoughtful she's a joy to be around I mean that's what we hear from every one of her teachers I hear from a lot of people and it really warms my heart when they say things like she's destined for something very very special I believe that 
I definitely believe that she is. It's beyond just being her mother and the pride you feel as a mother. Mm -hmm. And I think that it has a lot to do with helping people that have gone through a lot of stuff because she's very, very keen on other people's feelings and emotions and, you know, helping people. She's very proud Girl Scout. She loves the service and community aspects of things. She loves doing things and giving back, and I'm just so proud of how far she's come and who she is, and we're coming up on this year. She'll be 13 years old. I've caught flack a couple of times, I will say, which kind of amuses me. I had one mom that told me that uh, she didn't really think that we needed to go as all out on birthday parties as we did. I kind of laughed, and I was like, all right, well, you know, I see that that's your opinion, and that's cool and everything, but we came dangerously close to losing her, so... Everything is sweeter. Yeah. Every moment is more precious. You've also said this experience brought your family closer. I'd love to lie and tell you that Adam and I were a super strong, happy couple before all this happened, and we weren't. We were having a hard time as a husband and wife. We were hitting our our uh, seven-year itch stretch, and we were not doing awesome as husband and wife. I do believe that this brought us all closer together. I do believe that it helped save our marriage It absolutely made us stronger as a family. We had plans to have more children, but with everything so up in the air about what was going to happen with Roxy, would the tumor come back? What would we do? And now we've got, let's say, a newborn and, you know, we have to go through brain surgery again with her. And I couldn't stomach the thought of not being there with her to see her through any further treatment she'd need. And I couldn't stomach the thought of leaving another child behind because I had to be there for Rox. So we just kind of comfortably became a party of three. And I look back and I don't have any regrets. My my ovaries every now and then tell me I do, but my brain and my heart say, knock it off. <laughs> You're good. You're good. We're good. We're party of three. We fit lovely on an airplane. <laughs> it's been a heck of a journey. And there's been a lot of people. Stephanie Amy is owner of Soul Oasis, a really awesome spa. She's just amazing. She does Reiki. She does acupuncture. She's got such a quiet, beautiful soul. And she's very comforting just to be in proximity to. She helped me to see a lot of things and to understand what I was going through and to help me to learn how to process what I was going through, really. She taught me about what grounding and meditation was. She worked with me on being kinder to myself. She had told me, she gave me a little assignment and told me every day she wanted me to look in the mirror and say one nice thing to myself. And I remember when she said it to me, I laughed kind of darkly (laughs) and was like, (laughs) she said, I already can hear your mindset, you know? And I said, what am I supposed to say to myself? She said, start out with little things, okay, that are easy truths. She's like, you're a very funny person. She said, you know, your friends think you're funny. I think you're funny. She said, say something nice to yourself like my friends think I'm very funny. She's like, and I want you to work up to personal things like... I am beautiful. I have nice eyes. I love my hair. And I'm like, oh my gosh. (sighs) All right, Stephanie. So I go home and it started out really rude, to be honest. (laughs) The first time I went to do my assignment, I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, your friends think you're funny. (laughs) I mean, it's not awkward or anything. (laughs) I did. I felt very awkward and it felt really dumb. And I was just like, this is stupid. This isn't going to do anything. Then the next day I was doing something and I was like, oh, my hair looks nice. And I was like, okay, we'll use this today. And I said, hey, girl, your hair looks nice. (laughs) And I, I started kind of being able to slide it into the mode of I was giving someone else a compliment. And so daily, you know, I'd be like, hey, your makeup looks good today. That shirt looks nice. 
but I would see myself little by little start to soften. And then one day I just, I felt, I felt pretty. I really did. I even took a selfie, sent it to my hubby and I stood in the mirror and I couldn't tell myself I looked pretty. I tried to say the words and they wouldn't come out. And it was like, okay, I am pretty. (laughs) And then I realized how very important it was just to be nice to yourself. With so much cruelty that can be experienced, being nice to yourself opens your, your person up to being nice to others. I never realized the value of that. Just being nice to yourself. What a ridiculous thing. This should be easy to be nice to yourself, but we're not programmed like that. We're programmed to judge ourselves based off of what we see on TV and in magazines. We're programmed to constantly second guess and question ourselves and our, our shapes and our form and our beauty or lack of. It's just, it's not as easy as such a simple thing should be, just to be kind to yourself. That led into the idea of learning to fill my bucket, my own bucket, myself, Um, not waiting for others to fill my bucket, learning in turn that I can't pour from an empty bucket. I can't be a good mom and pour from a bucket that's empty into my daughter's bucket. I can't fill her up if I'm empty. So I had to learn to take time for myself and do things that make me feel good and make me happy. You know, creative outlets, reading, writing, making crafts, doing art. Now I share it with my daughter and it's incredible. We paint together, we draw, we do all sorts of craft things together. She's very big into cooking, makes me very proud. I didn't even know how to make a grilled cheese when I moved out of my house when I was a kid. (laughs) But it's, it's been a heck of a journey, and there's been a lot of beauty and a spice of ugly here and there, and some people that weren't as kind as I could have liked or hoped that they would be. It's another teaching moment every time, you know, and stuff. I mean, I've had people that have gotten frustrated and impatient with Roxy because she didn't answer them right away and stuff, and, you know, they asked her a question. And it was like, okay, well, she's considering her answer. And the more you holler at her and make her nervous, the less likely she's going to be to answer you. Right. I'm trying to explain to people she doesn't like to be scared. Roxy likes to be thrilled. She loves to go on roller coasters and be thrilled. But to watch a scary movie or have something, you know, jump out and scare her is the worst. That is awful for her. A lot of her girlfriends really, really like that kind of stuff and haunted houses and things and You know, when I go to explain to them, like, you know, Roxy doesn't like to be scared, like to be afraid. She's, she's already had a good dose of being afraid. So fear is just not her, her jam, you know, and these little beautiful souls, they get it on a level that is so different from, like I said, when we grew up and they're, they're very accepting of everything. And I don't have to explain things a lot to the children, whereas the adults are different. Like I said, we've run into a handful of people that have just been jerks you know, but they're out there. They're always out there and stuff. And it's always hard to remember that it's a reflection of how they feel about themselves and not truly how they view or feel about you. But it's still hard. And it's hard for me to explain to my daughter why someone wasn't very nice or was cruel to her. Mm-hmm. But she's she's just so full of life and joy and, and everything that it's just, it's incredible. It's been incredible and such a pleasure and a joy watching her grow. I mean, I wish it would slow down. Watching her become the little woman that she's becoming is the greatest joy of my entire life. I love that you talked about resilience in children. Uh I think especially as mothers, you know, we try to protect 
our children yes. from our own fears. And I think that was such a valuable thing for your doctor to sort of not warn you, but yeah, give me the heads up. Yeah. Don't project your own fears onto her yes. because that could really affect how she grows up. That'll hold her back. That's what he said. And I definitely had to really get a grip on myself, which was very, very difficult when the fear would overtake me. You know, she would show any symptom she'd had prior to the brain surgery and it all came flooding back. And it was just like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Oh my God, it's happening again. I can't do this again. It's unbelievable though, on that note as well, what you can do and what you can get through. It's shocking. We had friends and family that had said to Adam and I, you know, I, I just can't believe how well you're holding up through the hospital ordeal. I heard my mom said that to me about my aunt had said it to her. And I turned around and I said, is there another option? <laughs> because I, I didn't know there was another option. I thought we just had to hold up. <laughs> I was like, you know, I, I knew myself well enough to know that I had to stay positive, that I had to believe that she was going to get through this because the alternative way too much to even consider. Right. So that couldn't even be a shadow in my mind. Looking back, we got through it because we did it together and we had a beautiful support system. So many amazing friends and family that were there for us and lifted us up. And it was another thing. The school did a, a fundraiser for us at the behest of some of the students' parents. They asked to do a fundraiser to help us out financially so that you know some of the financial burden would be lifted, which was you know, you don't want to talk about money when you're dealing with something like this, but I got to say it made all the difference. It made the difference in between Adam having to be at work to make that money so that we could pay our bills and not fall under. He didn't have to be there. He could be with Roxy and I where we needed him to be. It was just incredible to be able to pay the bills and have Adam there with us and not be separated because that was what we were looking at was that he was still going to have to go to work and that I would have to be there by myself to make decisions and handle things. And I, I really don't know if I could have done that. I, I shudder to think of me having to face that without him. You hate to talk about money, but man, if you ever can help somebody financially when they're going through something, you have no idea what a burden that takes off their plate. I also want to thank you for sharing your experience with that mirror exercise, talking to yourself. I remember when a couple years ago, a friend told me the same thing and was like, yeah, look yourself in the mirror and just say, you are beautiful. Yeah. You are worthy. And I just remember thinking, what? <laughs> if I remember correctly, there was like five affirmations that I was supposed to say to myself. I had gotten to a place where you, know, you talked a little bit about how we are so engrossed in helping others and yeah. everything, which is not a bad thing, but we lose ourselves because we're searching for external validation. Yes. And we end up losing ourselves and we you just don't know who you are anymore. The familiar stranger. Yeah. And I had gotten mm -hmm. to that point and I remember looking in the mirror and I'm like, there's these five things I have to say to myself. <laughs> I couldn't do it. It's hard. I think it took me like three days mm -hmm. before I could even say one of those yep. things and actually mean yep. it. And mean it. That was the that was the hard part for me too, because I could very sarcastically say things to myself in the mirror and laugh and ha ha ha. It did. It takes a while for you to say it and mean it. That's where I feel like a lot of my healing began. Like I said, along with all the help Stephanie Amy gave me with the tools for my mental toolbox to cope with and deal with what I went through. And that was the other thing that we discovered that 
You can't, I mean, mm-hmm. you can, you can absolutely stuff it down, but it manifests in other problems, you know, like, oh, suddenly I have gastrointestinal issues. Well, guess what? That's because you're stuffing things down and eating them and you can't do that. I like to say that there are these little boxes we have in our heads mm-hmm. and they're full of different compartmentalized traumas. We keep these little boxes tightly locked up. We put them away and we try and forget them, but they're always there and they're always making noise and bumping around and causing a ruckus. And until you get that box out and you open it up and you take a stick and you poke all the ugly things in it and examine them, which is horrific sometimes. Mm-hmm. Once you face it though, when it was all done and over, my girlfriend Nikki said to me, what do you need? Do you need to cry? Do you need to talk? Do you need a hug? Do you need to sleep? Do you need to go into a cornfield and freak out? <laughs> I like the cornfield option. So we did. We went to a cornfield and I was like, this is silly. Like, what are we doing here? And she's like, I don't know, scream at the moon. And I was like, ha ha, ah. And then it became this maniac screaming and I'm looking around trying to find who it is and it's me letting it all go, releasing all of this fear and anxiety and terror that had built up. And I felt exhausted afterwards and I slept really well, not going to lie. <laughs> Facing it all, talking about it, that's the other thing. Find somebody safe to talk about your trauma with. You can't do it alone. You just can't. You need somebody safe to talk about your trauma with. The more you talk about it, the more distant it becomes as far as it's no longer this thing that's holding you back. It just becomes this thing that is part of who you are and created the person you are today. And you can let that eat you up or you can let that become something that makes you stronger. I'm somebody's mom, man. I got to be strong. So I had to face it all. I heard another beautiful thing one day that was, you know, you finally healed when you can tell your story without crying. Clearly, I haven't completely healed, but I used to, someone would ask me to tell the story and I'd get three words into it and break down. Now it's just, it's something we did, something we went through. It's part of what made us who we are today, and I'm grateful for that. We, I have a beautiful life. I have a wonderful, amazing husband who I love endlessly and feel so grateful for. I'm blessed with this beautiful little girl I get to raise and be a part of her journey. I just couldn't be happier, to be honest, and you know, all the anxiety and all the, you know, here's some medication for your anxiety. Stop with the medication, people. I get that you may need it as, you know, for a time being to get you through, but it's not good. It's stopping you and it's holding you back from facing the things you need to face and doing the things you need to do to carry on because that is the whole point. You have to carry on. You have to keep growing. Like I said, it's important to have somebody safe to discuss your trauma with. And the next thing you know, you'll be on a podcast sharing your story. (laughs) And you bring up a really good point because, yes, there are obviously certain circumstances where medication is the route to go. But ultimately, for things like anxiety and anger and depression, it's just a Band-Aid for things that you haven't processed. Yes. Sometimes you need it to get through to be able to get to the point where you can process it. You just can't stay on it. I mean, it's literally, it's bad for your body. Yes. You know, it's damaging and it doesn't help your mental health. You have to get those boxes out and poke them and empty them out. I also really like an exercise Stephanie taught me of letting go. For me, writing things down. Writing has always been a big deal to me. I love to write. So when she discovered that, she said, okay, so I want you to write down your feelings and then Mm -hmm. I want you to burn it which is also very appealing to me because I really like fire. (laughs) So 
I like the idea of watching the pen make the marks and put the words on the paper that I could physically see. And then the physical act of burning it and watching it disintegrate, float away into the air and become nothing. It was, it's very cathartic Mm -hmm. (laughs) to watch that happen. And I really, I recommend it highly. Get it out, let it go and move forward. Somebody taught me that. It's so healing. It is. You were talking about physical symptoms like gastrointestinal issues, migraines, different things like that. Your deeply seated trauma manifests in those things. Yes, it does. It absolutely does. And I've talked to so many people that, you know, oh man, I've got this constant tension in my shoulders and you get to talking to them and you get them to open up. And the next thing you find out is they haven't opened and poked their trauma boxes. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's what's creating all these things. And, you know, find your freedom, guys. I mean, mm-hmm. get those boxes out and poke them. <laughs> that's all I always tell everybody. <laughs> yeah, well, because it doesn't go away on its own. No, no, it just, it gets worse and it festers and it gets uglier. It changes you it, and it makes you into a person and a version of yourself you don't want to be. And that you don't recognize. Exactly. Well, as we close out this episode, I want to know what is your favorite compliment you've ever received? That I'm a good mom. That's perfect for you. That's my favorite. That's the most meaningful, you know, coming from my parents and even Adam's mom and dad, when they say that I'm a good mom, that's what fills my little bucket. (laughs) What is a compliment you can give yourself? I've gotten pretty good at giving myself compliments and being kind to myself and learning to love myself has been a big a big deal and accept that I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to have the perfect anything, body, looks, clothes to love myself. Honestly, I think one of the best compliments I can give myself is that I've come a long way. I'm the best version of myself now that I think I've ever been. That's awesome. Thanks, babe. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thank you. I'm so proud of you doing this. This is such an important and beautiful thing that you're doing. I'm just so proud of you and how what an amazing woman you are. And, you know, your your podcast is really going to help people. And I'm very, very proud of you for that. I just appreciate you so much. I mean, because you, you've seen it all. Yeah. We're going on 30 years of friendship. Yeah, 30 years crazy more than that actually yeah, <laughs> yeah. let's 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 be oh, honest no, no, you know too much. <laughs> let's let's just be honest about that <laughs> all right <laughs> so 35 <laughs> this podcast is all about authenticity you know that <laughs> okay yes yes <laughs> we've grown up with each Absolutely. other we've just been in each other's lives I mean I still remember going to your baby shower for yeah. Roxy and that was such a beautiful memory that was so special for me we cherish the the book you made us Roxy gets it out from time to time she'll just go drag the Estella book out and we look all the pictures and all the beautiful little scrapbook pages you made us to write our own story and we love it. It's a very cherished piece of our, our family timeline. That's awesome. And I've just loved watching her grow into this amazing, lovely human being. Thank you so much. We're so proud of her. Thank you for tuning in. I would love to know what your favorite part of this episode was. Tag me at Finding Strength of Heart on Instagram or Facebook. Or you can email me at FindingStrengthOfHeart at gmail.com. Until next time, take good care of you and we'll chat soon.